You're listening to The Main Course, where food is serious business. Listen along for insights, strategies, forecasts, and thought leadership from the front lines of food with your host, Barbara Castiglia. Welcome to The Main Story. Today, we're going to be discussing legal issues in the restaurant industry and what are some of the top of mind topics that restaurants should know about and uh, you know particularly in this pandemic year that we're going through what are some some of the things that will help them operate their businesses you know in a better and more efficient manner our guest today is one of Modern Restaurant Management's legal analysts who's been writing a column for us for a number of years, and we're happy to talk to her about all of these different legal issues. So I'd like to welcome Pooja Nair to the main course and you know fill us a little bit in first on your background, your partner at Irvin Cohen and Jessup in Los Angeles. But tell me a little bit about how you got interested in you know food and beverage and hospitality and why you felt it was an area that you wanted to practice sure you know i've been practicing primarily with food beverage and hospitality clients for the past i'd say for the past five years i've focused on that and for me it's just i'm passionate about food and about restaurants and about the experience i think it's what i do in my spare time and i think more than any other type of company a restaurant or food manufacturer, they, they provide something that's a really tangible value. And it's going into a restaurant of one of my clients, something that I find really personally satisfying. And I think as a lawyer, the, the restaurant industry kind of faces a lot of legal issues all at the same time. So there's an interesting confluence there. I'm dealing with so many different types of things in my practice from IP issues, lease issues, contract issues, a lot of employee issues, um, setting up partnership disputes, dealing with investors. It's kind of, it runs the gamut. And on top of that, you have to deal with regulations from the state government, local governments, and the federal government on all of these topics. And so I find it to be something that never gets boring and it always kind of maintains my interest. And there's just, there's so much to do in the industry and so much to be aware of. Now your firm, you just started a new practice that's focusing specifically um, in this area. Um, why did the firm decide to to go this route? So we have, the, Irvin Cohen Dressup is one of the oldest firms in Beverly Hills, and we've w- worked with a lot of restaurant clients and food and beverage clients over the years. We decided to launch this practice group officially last month in August, kind of because in the wake of the COVID pandemic, we saw a need to highlight and make effective our services that we already had so that consumers in the space, clients in the space had access to all of our resources kind of under one umbrella because we can help clients with understanding things like the Paycheck Protection Act and other federal relief benefits. We can help on the tax side. We have advised clients on the insurance side and then um, employment and litigation. So at this time, given the um, given the fact that a lot of our restaurant clients just seem to be really inundated with a lot of changes at the same time and trying to keep their head above water with um, with COVID and with being able to understand all of the different moving pieces of federal, state, and local regulations, we thought it would be a good time to kind of um, to start this practice group to be that resource for our clients during a difficult time. There have been so many legal related issues uh, 
during the pandemic. Um, particularly, a lot of them have been focusing on reopening uh, indoor dining, outdoor dining. Um, so what are, I guess, what's the latest that you're hearing and that you're, uh, that you're dealing with um, on these topics? Um, and the, I guess, what are, are the pain points for the restaurateurs? So I think the most recent thing that has come out is about New York City. And I practiced in, uh, in California, but we're, but, you know, New York City is so important to the restaurant industry that what's been happening in New York about indoor dining, I think is really worth uh, considering and thinking about. So on July 6th, New York announced that it was going to indefinitely postpone all indoor dining in New York City, with no reopening date and no reopening metrics. And a lot of the restaurant groups and restaurants tried to lobby both at the city and state level to get some kind of metrics and some kind of plan. But that was not um, the, the, the city and state both declined. And so over 300 uh, over 300 restaurants filed a large class action lawsuit against New York City just last Friday, the, um, the 4th. And that um, soon after the lawsuit was filed just yesterday, New York announced that it was going to create a new uh, reopening plan for indoor dining at 25% capacity. And that's going to go into effect at the end of the month on September 30th. So that that approach of trying to lobby for indoor dining and then needing to file to go the legal to take the legal option um, and file a large class action lawsuit isn't ideal. But I think that that is something that some restaurant uh, some restaurants, depending on their city regulations, is, are going to be looking at closely. Yeah, there, there definitely were a lot of eyes on New York City um, as a dining capital and as, as you know, it being, you know, a lot of the pulse of the city um, is, you know, the dining. Um, but it, you know, so I think a lot of people were looking at it and saying, okay, you know, New York, as New York goes, the rest of everyone will go and um, but, it, you know, it all comes down to um, issues of safety and um, and and, you know, and I and I know the the lawsuits and all of that kind of propel um, the desires of uh, the restaurant owners who um, want to, um, you know, want want to be back in business and and the and the restaurant goers who want to go back to to, uh, you know, to eat and all. Um, but are there any other um, considerations that they should have? Um, um, here in, I'm in New Jersey, where we just started indoor dining back uh, last week uh, for uh, 25%. And it's so far so good. Um, and but it's kind of slow going. Um, do you expect that New York will be a little quicker uh, for people to, to go back uh, and be comfortable in the actually dining in? You know, I think that what, what I'm seeing a lot is that even in even in counties here in California that have opened for indoor dining, that it is going to be slow going. I think there is a certain segment of the population that is not going to feel comfortable for a while with going indoors and that group has, and that group may not feel comfortable with outdoor dining either. So I think that's the group that's focused on takeout and delivery options primarily and would not be particularly open to restaurants. And I think that's going to be a steady segment of the population. And then you've got a group of, you've got a group of, of uh, restaurant customers that want to go out and want to be indoors or want to be dining out. But I don't think that it's going to go anywhere near 
back to normal or even back to what 25% capacity of normal restaurant operations is. One of the things that uh, came up uh, a lot is, um, you know, outdoor dining and really the increase um, and the quicking, quick ramp up um, of spaces. Um, and, you know, a lot of that involved permitting and, uh, and, and quick thinking municipalities to, to be able to do this. Um, do you think that those are going to stay in place and that we're just going to have more outdoor dining um, and as part of the culture? You know, I think at least for California, I'm 100% sure that the, that the changes that have been made during the pandemic are going to stay in at least some capacity afterwards. There has already been a city council bill in Los Angeles that's proposed to make the LA Alfresco program, which is Los Angeles's um, outdoor dining permitting program, permanent. Um, and if that goes into effect, that will uh, that will control LA. And I think that influences a lot of places around Southern California. I don't know about the rest of the country. I mean, in California, we have the weather for uh, for basically year round outdoor dining, and we have the space, at least in certain parts of California. Um, I think that when, uh, you know, other parts of the country have more, you know, they have seasons and we don't. And so I think that that, uh, that it may be part of summer or spring dining, but probably not fall or winter dining. But in California, it's made a huge impact in, uh, in how restaurants approach the permitting process. I mean, having dealt with, uh, with restaurant clients for a while, it's normally been reliably a headache to even get, you know, any kind of outdoor dining permits, um, especially if you're serving alcohol. And now with the LA Alpha program and with similar programs in different parts of, um, of California, there really is a, there is a receptiveness to at least expanding outdoor dining, seeing the crisis that restaurants are in. You know, kind of similar to that is there's really been a loosening of different alcohol regulations. Um, so maybe you can just kind of fill in a little bit on, on some of the things uh, that restaurants were allowed to get creative uh, in regarding uh, alcohol sales. Yeah, and we've seen a lot of that. And I think that's not just in California. There's um, there's at least a dozen states, including California, Texas, Virginia, New York, um, Illinois, Florida, Massachusetts, Louisiana. There's a long list of states that have uh, temporarily loosened their restrictions to let restaurants sell alcohol to go. And a lot of those states have also loosened their restrictions on dining outside and when consumers are able to um, to carry alcohol back. It's not been uniform, but I think there's just been a general trend of, at least with takeout orders, some kind of alcohol sales being allowed with takeout orders. And then each each state and, um, and local jurisdiction has been a bit different in exactly what restaurants are allowed to do. And I've seen a lot of restaurants get very creative with packaging cocktails or combining cocktails and meals because alcohol sales are so important uh, for profitability. And so it, it definitely does not make up for having full restaurant and bar service. But it's, I, I, think in, I think in every way, restaurants are getting creative. Um, and working with what they what they can do. Now, are, are you have you been seeing any kind of COVID related lawsuits? And should restaurants be concerned um, about this? Well, definitely, definitely. I think I've been seeing COVID related lawsuits on both sides. Right now, what I, 
we primarily saw a large wave of insurance-related lawsuits filed by restaurants against their insurance companies. And, you know, French Laundry, I think, started that, and they did it soon after the pandemic shut them down for indoor dining. But a lot of other restaurants followed suit, and those are currently with the courts right now. And those are lawsuits that the restaurants are filing related to their business interruption insurance coverage, where the insurance companies have denied coverage, but the restaurants are saying that, you know, this policy should cover the pandemic and pandemic-related closures. Um, We're also seeing lawsuits or other kinds of administrative actions brought by employees against restaurants for basically unsafe work conditions or work conditions that caused COVID. And in California, there's a presumption that workers' compensation, uh, that, that if a worker contracts COVID while they're working at an essential job, that that's a workers' compensation claim. And so that will definitely have an impact on the price of the already high cost of workers' compensation insurance. Um, I have not seen personally quite as many consumer lawsuits where a consumer is um, is targeting a restaurant or business for them contracting COVID. And a lot of restaurants are concerned about that. And a, a lot of state legislatures, including um, Nevada, and there, there's several states, six or seven states that have already passed business immunity laws that would cover restaurants. And I think other, other states will work to do this as well, so, so that if a restaurant follows the rules and complies with public health guidelines, if a customer happens to contract COVID while eating at that restaurant or, you know, they contract it and they, they, they allege that it's because, of, because they were eating at the restaurant, that there would be some kind of business immunity protection. I think that's a really important step. And Restaurants to if you're a restaurant that isn't that they, and you don't know where your state stands on it, almost every legislature is at least considering this, and I think it's I think this would be an important step for restaurants. You know, would that just be restaurants, or you're talking other retailers and and you know all, all kind of all small businesses? Yeah, they protect uh, these, these tend to protect both small and large businesses businesses that are deemed essential. In some states, they've left out hospitals and uh, nursing homes, and in some some states, they've included them. But it's, it, it, for all the all the laws that I've seen, they cover grocery stores and restaurants, and then they may or may not cover um, schools, hospitals, uh, nursing homes, and other businesses that have been deemed essential. And so far, they have not covered kind of the the type of retail that was initially set down, like shopping malls and that kind of retail, but that may change as, as we go forward. So one of the um, other kind of legal areas that we've seen a lot in during the pandemic um, is uh, the issue of delivery and delivery fees um, because people were, um, you know, seeing how much percentage-wise was going to the delivery company and not to the restaurant itself. And there's a lot of legislation and talk about, um, you know, capping these fees. Um, so you can kind of fill us in a little bit um, about uh, what's going on there. Sure. And what we've seen on the delivery fees has been really on a city by city level. So some major cities have passed the delivery fee cap of around 15 percent. And that includes Los Angeles, San Francisco and Seattle. And I believe New York's might be slightly higher at 20 percent. I'm not sure. Uh, but this has been done by the city councils, as opposed to being something that's set statewide or countywide. 
And there's been a lot of support for that, but also a lot of resistance from the delivery companies who claim that uh, if you regulate the percentage that they can take out, it's going to make it harder for them to serve uh, serve consumers. It hasn't seemed to make a difference in the cities that have implemented it in terms of the sales going down and the the, um, the number of deliveries being made, but it isn't something that has been implemented on a wider scale. And it, um, as far as I know, not very many states are considering doing something that's that's statewide because people have been the city councils that have enacted this have all characterized it as emergency uh, as, as an emergency ordinance. Um, you mentioned earlier you're talking a little bit about the Paycheck Protection Program um, and. Um, other kind of relief programs uh, that are available um, for restaurants. One of them is uh, the Restaurants Act. Um, so if you can kind of fill in what's going on um, and kind of what's out there um, that restaurants should be aware of. Sure. I mean, the Restaurants Act is huge. The Restaurants Act is a bipartisan bill that's currently being discussed in both this, the House of Representatives and the Senate. And it, it really is bipartisan. In the um, in the Senate, there's 27 co-sponsors of the bill. And then in the House, there's 192 co-sponsors of the bill out of uh, 435 members. So that's close to half. And that, that number of co-sponsors is growing on both sides. So the, the Restaurants Act is what the um, Independent Restaurant Coalition and the National Restaurant Association and a lot of the restaurant lobbying and industry groups have been pushing for. Uh, under the current version of the bill, the, rest, the, the Restaurants Act would provide $120 billion in forgivable grant funding that would be targeted to restaurants that have 20 locations or less and initially would prioritize restaurants with annual revenues of $1.5 million or, or less in order to basically target more independent restaurants. There was a lot of critiques about the Paycheck Protection Program in that they allowed restaurants or they, they allowed businesses with multiple locations to apply for the Paycheck Protection Loans. And that resulted in some large uh, some large companies getting, getting the benefit of those loans. And so the Restaurants Act is really targeted towards independent, uh, independent restaurants. And the grants could be used to cover uh, payroll, benefits for employees, uh, mortgage, supplies, and the debts and, and food of the restaurant. So it's it would allow the restaurant to do more than the paycheck protection, uh, the pay- paycheck protection loans. And they are considered grants, so they, they're not really established as loans that you then have to forgive. They're forgivable grants. Um, do you see any other legislation um, out there? I know um, a lot of people are calling for more Um you know, are you seeing uh, calls that that there will be something else in the future? Well, right now, in addition to that $120 billion grant program, the Restaurants Act also has um, a couple of tax credits that uh, some tax credit provisions that I think would be very important and also has a federal backstop for business interruption insurance. To, to help out restaurants that have that insurance and were denied coverage. I think that may be one of the things, and you know, I'm speculating here, but that may be one of the things that is not in the final act. So I think it depends. If the Restaurant Act was passed as is, even though it doesn't give people everything they want, it, it has a number of, of important provisions, even aside from the $100 billion in grants. Uh, if the if the restaurant act is passed with only the grant provisions, then I think there are going to be there is going to be um, a lot of talk about 
further further tax relief, either from the IRS or from the government, and doing something to have a uniform answer to these business insurance issues that restaurants are having. There's hundreds of lawsuits right now about business interruption, insurance coverage, and kind of what it means. And different states and local governments are looking at what they can do. But I think there's a lot of um, th- there's a lot of uh, expectations and um, and desire for the federal government to address it as well. One of the key issues that I hear about um, from restaurant owners and operators um, is staffing and how to make sure that their staff is safe um, and feels safe. And also the, the different nuances of, of what's going on and, and how to, um, how to respond to staff and how to work with them um, and, and how they should work with guests. So there's, there's a lot of these um, HR and legal um, balancing acts going on. Um, so can you talk a little bit about um, about kind of what you're seeing, how staffing has changed in the pandemic? I think this is something I've been dealing with on almost a daily basis. Uh, first, uh, restaurants should be aware of the Family First Coronavirus Response Act. That, uh, that, uh, that provides paid leave for employees. There's two weeks of paid sick leave if the employee is quarantined or has to care for someone who's in quarantine. And there's 10 weeks of paid family and medical leave at two-thirds pay if uh, the employee needs to take care of a child whose school is closed. And that's something that the government has been expanding. And I think it's very important for restaurants to be aware of what their obligations are if employees ask, um, ask for sick time. And then each, each employee, each employer really needs to consider the message that they're sending, the training that they're doing, and making sure that it's it corresponds with the latest public health directives. A lot of the public health offices, even though they're inundated right now, are providing uh, providing guidance and providing feedback on training programs that restaurants have. And I think it's very, very important to be clear on your plan, to be able to kind of adapt it as necessary, and then to be on board with your um with your staff as to what the plan is and the fact that it might change as public health, uh, public health regulations change. Here in Los Angeles, one thing that they've been doing is that because there's not as many inspectors available as there really needs to be for, for, for public health, they're encouraging employees to keep tabs on their employers and how, they, um, how they're following safety standards and then to report that directly to a liaison at the public health department. And that is something that employees should, employers in, in California particularly should be aware of because it's a pilot program in Los Angeles County, but it's something that, uh, that if it works may become, may become expanded. And so and I think it's one thing that both employees and customers are concerned with, but the most important thing I think is communication and being able to be adaptable. It's really, in a time where things are changing so fast, the directives coming out of public health departments are really, really changing quickly. I, I feel like it's almost a full-time job keeping up with the regulations at this point. And that's that's you know part of my job. So I'm on the phone with my clients constantly, updating them about what's going on and, and making sure that they're reopening plans and their guidelines are consistent with what's um, with what the latest information is. 
you know, and what are some of the advice that you're giving them in terms of, you know, being upfront and, uh, you know, transparent with all of this information? Is it posting things, um, having continual meetings with their staff, um, and, and, you know, opening that communication channel so that they're, um, you know, so that it's a two-way street and they're uh, working together and making everybody feel comfortable? Definitely. All of the above. And I think that um, that having a direct line for staff to express their concerns, uh, whether or not you had a tool before the pandemic, having some kind of um, either an anonymous tool that you do online or just making very clear that your doors are open. Because that's something that restaurants could have been doing before, but might not have been a top priority. But some kind of some kind of way, especially for larger restaurants, to ensure that employees have an anonymous way to be to to present their concerns and not necessarily limited to going to their direct manager. Because you want to be as a as a business, you want to make sure that you have that as much as you communicate openly, you also want to give employee employees a way to express concerns so that you can be on top of them. So one issue that was um, you know kind of the forefront of the industry for the past few years um, is uh, the joint employer rulings that um, had come out. And um, there's been some recent activity um, that people may not be aware of because they've been focusing on the pandemic. Um, So if you kind of just give a little bit of background and what restaurants now need to know about uh, this joint joint employer uh, legislation. Yes, talk about an exciting and kind of rapidly changing area with this with these more recent rulings. So uh, essentially, the joint employer doctrine under the Fair Labor Standards Act has been con- on a path of essentially continuous expansion, uh, culminating in like around 2015 and 2016, when under the Obama administration, the Department of Labor and the National Labor Relations Board issued kind of broader rules that said that businesses can be con- their joint employers, even if they if they never exercise a right that essentially control over an employee is not the only standard for a for a joint employer and making that liability broader. And obviously, if you've got a restaurant that's part of a franchise, or there's any possibility that you consider a joint employer with other entities, those rulings would give you a lot of pause. Um, and in January of 2020, the Department of Labor, under the current administration, announced the final rule that totally revised that track, but where we had been going in a direction of making joint employer liability broader and broader. The final rule that was announced in January uh, 2012, January 12, 2020, really, defi- really, really restricted that definition. And that rule was effective on in March of this year. And that, that rule essentially said that the presumption is that someone is not, uh, that there is no joint employer status unless there's direct control and that there was, um, it did not matter if an employee is economically dependent on the joint employer. It really mattered if there was direct control. So it significantly narrowed the standard and narrowed uh, joint employer liability. Now, after that law went into effect, 18 different states through their attorney generals filed a lawsuit against the Department of Labor. And they said essentially that 
Department of Labor did not have the authority to make a rule that went uh, that that was essentially the reverse course on the issue, and that it was um, that it, that the law should be struck down. And just a, a few days ago, on September eighth, a federal judge sitting in the Southern District of New York agreed with those uh, attorney generals and ruled that this administration's rule of um, a very narrow joint employer liability uh, was arbitrary and capricious and was unjustified and should not have departed unreasonably from prior interpretation. And the opinion is pretty scathing. I mean, it's, it's a long, detailed opinion, 62 pages, um, and the, the uh, judge is extremely critical of the Department of Labor. So it's, it's an interesting read. Now what's going, to, what's going to happen is obviously this will be appealed. So I don't think this is the last we've heard of it. But for right now, the, the, the final proposed rule that was, supposed, that was in effect starting in March 2020 is, is basically on pause because the judge has struck it down. For, um, th- this judge has, has struck it down and we'll have to wait to see how, how, the, how the Labor Department uh, responds. Uh, it's often said that California kind of leads the way and things then move across the country. Um, and a lot of eyes have been on uh, a new law that's AB5. It's the independent contractor law. Um, and it does involve the restaurant industry um, because it involves um, delivery drivers. Um, so if you can kind of uh, fill us in a little bit on that and, um, you know, and how that, what restaurant owners need to know about it. Sure. I mean, AB5 is part of my, has, feels like it's been part of my life forever. California, uh, California made this law effective on January 1st, 2020, and it followed a few Supreme Court, California State Supreme Court decisions that essentially said that there's a presumption that anyone that works for you is an employee and not an independent contractor. Given that California is the center of the entertainment industry, it's thrown the state into a little bit of turmoil, and it affects Restaurants and any industry, but restaurants that affect in terms of delivery drivers, people that you might hire to create your marketing materials or do things on a project basis where you would just hire a contractor, for example, social media consultants or, or anyone related to uh, writing projects for your restaurant or publicity, all of that kind of stuff. It, it really limits and makes you think about whether this person is really an independent contractor that I can hire on a one-off basis to do a specific task. Or if I have to treat them like a full employee and provide them the extensive protections that California labor law provides for us. Like, um, it's been extremely controversial and hard fought. There were actually, there was a new law just passed uh, yesterday called AB 2257, and that expands the exception under AB 5. So more, more professions, including freelance writers, entertainment, music professionals and kind of business to business consultants are now can now can be classified as independent contractors. So that's a, that's a bit of a scale back to the law. But the most important challenge for the law is Proposition 22. Um, so California voters in this election are going to be voting on Proposition 22, which would be an exemption for app-based uh, transportation and delivery companies. So that's the so that drivers or um, delivery drivers or um, passenger drivers working through an app would be considered independent contractors and would not fall into 
25. And Lyft and Uber are really spearheading Proposition 22. They've poured millions and millions of dollars into the ballot initiative in order to get voters to agree to find an, another independent contractor exemption. So it's, um, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens with this, but it will definitely affect restaurants. And if restaurants are currently working with independent contractors that they are paying directly and not using an app, then they, they should really be thinking about their potential liability and analyzing you know whether what that relationship is because I've had restaurants that work with you know they the restaurant publicist or other kind of functions that are not at the restaurant all the time but that they've and they've characterized as independent contractors and they could be at risk if they're not following AB5 now. Do you think that this is legislation that might spread? to other states? You know, I thought that there was a lot of forward momentum and other states were were considering it. But I think that the focus on COVID-19 has slowed that down because independent contractors, um, I I think in general, in every state, California most of all, but in every state, having employees can be more expensive for the business. And I think that uh, the momentum to expand this to more places has kind of, I've seen it stall. I think there was a few other states that were considering similar similar laws, although not as expensive as California's, and I, I have not seen any of them pass. So there are other legal issues that are going on um, that are not necessarily pandemic related. Um, there've been a, a number of cases um, about restaurant websites and apps and ADA compliance. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, this is, uh, you know, I think restaurant owners have always been familiar with the ADA in terms of their physical spaces and the need to comply and the proliferation of kind of nuisance type plaintiffs lawsuits about ADA issues. And that's now expanded to restaurant websites and apps. And the even though it's kind of not very clear in the ADA statute that the that websites would have to comply with any kind of ADA guidelines. Courts, especially in the Ninth Circuit where California is, have interpreted the ADA to include protections from uh, from ADA from websites being not accessible to consumers. So that includes there's a recent case of Domino's, Dunkin' Donuts has been a subject of a case where uh, where consumers said that they were not because of their disability they were not able to fully use the app or access information on the on a website. And I've seen a lot of my clients recently get inundated with these type of lawsuits. And they're not normally for a lot of damages, but it is something to be aware of. And definitely when a restaurant is designing their app or their website, if they should take into consideration whether this could be uh, whether the app would be accessible through a reader. It's not a huge cost uh, to do if you're updating your website. It's definitely something that I would I would suggest considering. Also in the midst of everything, uh, USDA instituted new dietary guidelines. Um, so if you could kind of fill us in about, uh, you know, how this affects restaurants. Well, you know, the, the new guidelines are one thing that I found surprising in them, and these aren't the final guidelines. What they what they will be issuing final guidelines in December. What uh, they have right now is um, is the scientific advisory committee has released their kind of draft of their opinions with a with a lot with a long report that supports it. But most of the time, this that is what gets incorporated into the final final guidelines. 
Uh, one thing that's surprising that, that I noticed is that they have reduced the alcohol consumption guidelines from uh, two drinks a day for men to one drink a day. Previously, it was uh, one drink a day for women and two drinks a day for men. Now, th now that's been reduced. And there's a big focus on kind of nutrition and um, nutrition reducing kind of obesity levels and on just focusing on balanced diets and stuff like that. And so the way that the USDA guidelines will ultimately influence restaurants, we'll probably see a few years down the line. I mean, those the USDA guidelines and USDA suggestions along with um, health and human services guidelines were what led ultimately to the requirement that restaurants, uh, in some cases, publish their nutritional information. And so that's that's probably what we're going to see, something like that. It's not going to be something that happens as soon as the guidelines are released in December, but I'd say that restaurants should be aware of what the guidelines are and expect that in the next few years there will be some kind of legislation or guidelines, especially for multi-location restaurants that could that could affect them in terms of disclosing nutritional information to customers and things along those lines. So let's flip back to California for a second. Um, another recent piece of legislation is going to allow for home cooking to be sold. So how does this affect restaurants? Are they going to have increased competition? Um, you know, is it is it something that they should be concerned about? You know, at this point, I would say it's not something that restaurants should be concerned about. Uh, the The initial law was AB six twenty six, and that was um, it's called, it's called the Home Food Homemade Food Operations Act, and that was passed with almost unanimous uh, support in both um, the California Senate and Assembly. And that allows only small scale home cooks to legally sell food made in their kitchens to the public. And a second bill was passed just recently, AB. 377 that set more uniform standards for inspections and permitting. But even though the bill was signed statewide, individual counties still need to sign up for the bill and approve the bill on their own at a county level. And that so far since the bill was passed in September 2018, in the past two years, only one county, Riverside County, has adopted uh, the AB 626 permits. And they've only given, I believe it's, it's under 30 permits. So it's really it, the scale that we're talking about, although the law was um, was supported and there was there seemed to be some forward momentum, the, there hasn't been a lot of activity in actually seeking permits and in counties Take, making any efforts to make this part of their regime. So I think the home cooks that are cooking now are doing so for the most part without a permit and without large revenues. I think the maximum revenue under the bill is only 50, is 50,000. And I, they were saying that very, very few home cooks are going to come anywhere near that. So I don't think that that is a huge concern for restaurants, but I think it's an interesting way that the that it was interesting that the bill was so supported. And I think it, it's going to speak to maybe um, not necessarily competition, but a different way of consumption that it focused on hyper-local kind of products. Right, hyper-local e-commerce in a way. Yeah. Um, so we'll end on kind of, uh, you know, looking forward, um, you know, what, what are some legal trends that you see, um, that you think will affect the restaurant business, say, within the next year? Well, I think the constant uh, opening and reopening is going to be something that we're just going to have to live with for the next year. You know, I think that uh, the the changing public health information and the, the 
responsibility of restaurants to, to keep on top of it and to adapt their food safety practices and their operations to what's going on with the pandemic is, is definitely, unfortunately, a trend that I expect to see uh, continuing. I think there's also going to be a positive trend of local um, local and county governments being more willing to work with restaurants on things like permitting and alcohol. And I think restaurants can expect that if they get involved or if they try to speak to their city council or counties, there's definitely an interest in helping helping restaurants on that, that scale. And I think that we will see some version of the Restaurants Act. Um, I'm not sure if it'll have all the provisions that the current version has, but I think that there is enough momentum for some version of the Restaurants Act to to probably pass and restaurants should be very well aware of essentially what what they could get and to be on top of um, applying for a grant if they uh, once it passes because I assume that just like with the paycheck protection loans that there will be kind of a a large amount of people a large large amount of restaurant owners and businesses applying for the relief and so it's important to to focus and to um, have an alert as to when that gets passed and be aware of it because I think that um, it, the timing will be key in terms of applying for those grants. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's great to be on.